Well, I'm excited um, to start a new uh, sermon series uh, that we'll do for about five weeks, and then we'll take a bit of a break, and then we're going to do another four weeks. So all together, uh, this is a series that I'm going to be running for about nine weeks long. So uh, as they say, buckle up, uh, we're, we're going we're gonna, to uh, make some headway here. It is uh, um, on the book, the letter uh, to the Roman church, Romans. Maybe it's up there. Oh, perfect. Martin Luther, Martin Luther said this. He said, this epistle, this Romans letter, is really the chief part of the New Testament and is truly the purest gospel. It's worthy not only that every Christian should know it word for word, and I'm not going to test you on that, by the way. I'm going to start memorizing word for word the entire letter to Romans but that he or she should occupy himself with it every day as the daily bread of the soul. We can never read it or ponder over it too much, he says, for the, wor- the more we deal with it, the more precious it becomes and the better it tastes. One of my favorite authors, J.I. Packer, says this, all roads in the Bible lead to Romans. And all views afforded by the Bible are seen most clearly from Romans. And when the message of Romans gets into a person's heart, and that's what my prayer is this morning, there's no telling what may happen. I was sitting here this morning and I was reminded of something that St. Francis of Assisi said. You know, Josh. If... Preach the God. He says, preach the gospel. You remember what St. Francis said. You know your modern, your church fathers. He said, preach the gospel and if necessary, use words. And a lot of people have used that as a, as a scapegoat or, or an excuse for not telling people about the gospel of Jesus Christ. They said, oh, I'll just live my life as a gospel image. And when people come out to me going, hey, what is it about you that just makes everything so amazing? Then I'll say, uh, it's because I have a relationship with Jesus. How many people, on a show of hands, has that ever happened? One. Because you're an exuberant Christian and people just come straight to you. And of course, it's the pastor. But <laughs> and it was interesting, that's not what he meant. Because in the context for St. Francis, he was under immense persecution where literally anything that he said was, was turned around and used against him. So that's why he said, if necessary, use word. He, he was getting to the point where the only thing he could do was his life had to exemplify the message of the Christ. But the Bible also says faith comes from hearing. You have to preach the gospel. What is the gospel called? The good news of Jesus Christ. It's not the mediocre news of Jesus, the convenient news of Jesus. It's the good news. That's why we sing what we sing with exuberance this morning. Because his news, right now, we were talking about this morning. He's faithful. He is good. Because his news is good. And this is what the gospel is. Not was, but it is good news still to this day. Amen? I want to take us on a bit of a journey this morning. 
the first slide I want to talk about is the Apostle Paul. Who wrote this letter? You'll see there's a a statue of uh, Saint uh, the Apostle Paul behind me. The Apostle Paul wrote to the Romans from the Greek city of Corinth in A.D. 57. Just three years after the 16-year-old Nero had ascended to the throne as the emperor of Rome. You would have remembered Nero is the one that burnt the city of Rome to, the, to a crisp. The political situation in the capital had not yet, not yet deteriorated to Roman Christians as Nero wouldn't begin his persecution of them until he made the scapegoats after the great Roman fire of AD 64, which he blames the Christians on. Paul, feeling his time was done in Corinth, felt he needed a fresh new challenge. I love that after so many missionary journeys, as he's further along in his faith, there's no uh, 401k or Kiwi saver for Paul. He says, I'm up for another challenge. Imagine being 60, 70 years old, and you're like, I think I deserve a retirement. But he's like, no, I want a new challenge. It was like when I first met Duncan Graham. Do you guys know Duncan Graham? My first time meeting Duncan Graham, and he says, oh, I'm not retired, I'm just retreading. I said, what? He's like, I love, he goes, I love that concept. He goes, I'm not retired, I'm just retreading for the next missionary journey. And this is where Paul is. Paul's feeling a time that is done in Corinth, and he feels this new challenge, and he wants to plant, what? New churches in new territory. And this was a big ask for him. He wanted to go all the way to Spain. And so before heading to Spain, he needs to return to Jerusalem to hand over all the money that had been deposited by all the Gentile churches. So he, he's got to do a bank deposit. So then before heading out on his way to Spain, he'll stop through. It's literally a stopover through Rome. For Paul, he comes to a state, a kind of a stage of change at this point in his life. And after preaching the gospel for over 25 years, he's on to another challenge. He's been planting churches and panel beating, I use that Kiwi term, panel beating discipleship with issues arising from these new congregations. And you could look at that in the books of Corinthians and Galatia and Thessalonica. Romans is a, a lull in his ministry. He's actually, if you look at the context and the content of Romans, it's not a prescriptive letter. Where in Corinth, he's like, here's how you do worship. Here's how you deal with the sacraments of the Eucharist. Here's how you don't sleep with your brother. Here's how, you, you know, there's, it was very prescriptive. But Romans is a bit of a sabbatical it's a lull in his ministry as he takes the time to reflect and write a deeper theological paper. Paul wrote to a church in Rome, so he wasn't just writing it into the ether like Romeo and Juliet. These Roman believers that were experiencing a time of relative peace, but a church that had, he had felt needed a strong dose of basic gospel doctrine and theology. So writing from Corinth, Paul likely encountered a diverse array of people 
and practices from gruff sailors, arr, well, the pirates, I guess, to meticulous tradesmen, to wealthy idolaters and enslaved Christians. What a huge spectrum. The prominent Greek city was also a hotbed of sexual immorality and idol worship. The letter to the Romans stands as the clearest and the most systematic presentation of the Christian doctrine in all of Scripture. I remember one time um, someone had said that they'd rather have the, the one letter of Romans if they were ever caught in a, in a prison or something. They said, I'd rather have just the letter of Romans than any, any other thing out of the Bible because it's a clear understanding of culture and systematic theology. Let's look at Rome. I don't know if you've got a slide there of Rome. The book of Acts really says nothing about the founding church in Rome. So where you see any information about, the, about Rome in itself is only going to be in the book of Romans. In Acts 2, at the time of Pentecost, there were people, when the, the outpouring of the Holy Spirit came, there were people that were from, Jews from Rome, at the, at the day of Pentecost, Acts 2. These Jews became Christians in that moment because 3,000 people after the outpouring of the Holy Spirit became followers of Jesus and, and they developed these new congregations in Rome. And the city primarily were kind of extensions out of synagogues. So Jews that became followers of Jesus went back to Rome. So many of these synagogue-like churches were in Rome at the first century. Though Jewish at the origin, the core, but they were then populated by Gentiles. Jewish character of Christianity in Rome would be threatened and changed in AD 49 with the Emperor Claudius. An embroiled argument and polarizing decision um, was settled and the Emperor cast out all the Jews out of the city. So you imagine the Jews started the church there was an embroiled argument, and then the emperor says, get out. The only people left in the church now are Gentiles. And for years, these Gentiles built up the church in Rome. By the time writes, Paul writes to the Roman congregation, the Jews were finally allowed back into Rome. And they come back to a very 100% Gentile church. That's a, key, that's a key component, Lego bricks, like when they fit together. You have to understand the, the context plus content equals meaning. I don't know if you've ever heard me say that. So context is you have to understand that Jews experience this amazing Holy Spirit outpouring. Hallelujah, shamalalujah, and they start speaking in tongues, and they're like, yeah, you know, should have bought a Kia. Like they, they, they go, and they go back to Rome, and they build this beautiful church, and, and Gentile people come in and they fill the tank and they have tank talk and they get saved and they start doing discipleship. And then all of a sudden the emperor says, you have to leave. And he, he kicks all the Jews out of the city. All the founding pastors of all the churches in Rome that were Jewish, now messianic, they're, they're now Christians. He says, get out of here. And what's left? It's all the Gentiles, the non-Jews. And they stay there for years. 
building the church, doing tank talk, doing discipleship. And then the emperor relents. He says, okay, okay, fine. The Jews can come back. And they come back into a city and everything is different. It seems like, like they've, this is their church. They've changed the wall colors. They, they've, they've made different, different uh, orders of service and run sheets. You know, they banded, the songs are different. They're not as Jewish. They're, they're, they're just different. Not wrong, not bad, but different. And Paul sees that this schism, this is an issue in Rome. And you'll see throughout the whole book of Romans that, there, that he will continue to address this schism, this, this fractionalization. So when you're writing in your book notes, you know, write out, check for fractionalization or division between Jews and Greeks or Gentiles. Social tension between the two groups. Jews started the movement and, the, and they were leaders. Now they are adherents. They are now the minority. Rome itself has its own social and societal issues. From its pantheon of gods to this philosophical thrust to focus on the perfect sense of self. Let's pray. Father, we thank you for your word. We thank you that we know content, we know content, we know meaning. We pray that you would illuminate the scriptures to us in the name of Jesus. And everyone says, amen. Turn to your Bibles to Romans chapter 1. When are we going to get to the text, John? Finally. Romans 1. I'm first going to look at 16 and 17, and then we'll look at, back a little further. If you are lacking a Bible, uh, an English Standard Version Bible, please come see me. We have new Christian packs for you. We would hate for you to leave um, without having the Bible. I know you have ESV.com on your device, but if you need something that's low-tech, I'm here for you. Romans 1, 16 and 17 out of the ESV. For I am not ashamed of the gospel. For it is the power of God for salvation for, to everyone who believes. To the Jew, hold on, recognize the fractionalization that we just talked about. Here we go. Boom. To the Jew first and also to the Greek. Now, does it make sense? You've been reading this verse for years, or maybe the last 10 minutes. And now, you, now it makes contextual sense. Verse 17, for in it the righteousness of God is revealed from faith for faith, as it is written, the righteous shall live by faith. Let's look at content. I think we had that up there as well, content. Verse 16 begins with the conjunction, for, connecting verses 13 and 15. Verse 15 says, I'm so eager to preach the gospel. Remember what St. Francis said, preach the gospel and if necessary use words? No, Paul is saying, I'm so eager to 
preach, speak, teach, talk out the gospel to you also who are in Rome. For this reason, I am not ashamed. Rather than I am not, it's a negative. I'm not ashamed. Actually, if you looked at the Greek, it's called exegete. If I exegete the Greek, it's actually for I am proud. He's proud that he's, he's continuing to preach the gospel after 25 plus years. The Apostle Paul qualifies himself this way. Look at verse 1 to 6. Verse 1 to 6. Paul, a servant of Christ Jesus, called to be an apostle, set apart for what? The gospel of God, which he promised beforehand through his prophets in the Holy Scriptures concerning his son who was descended from David according to the flesh, so very Jewish. He's, he's giving a Jewish narrative. He's, he's kind of connecting dots here. And was declared to be the son of God in power, going back to what we just talked about, the power of God, according to the spirit of holiness by his resurrection from the dead. Jesus Christ, our Lord, through whom we have received grace and apostleship to bring about the obedience of faith for the sake of his name among all the nations, including you who are called to belong to Jesus Christ. See, I love that there's this established, consistent, committed, and caring for the message of God, the gospel. He qualifies himself not because he's tooting his own horn, but he's sh showing to not only Jews, but also to Gentiles that I have the goods. I have the CV to back me up. And it is the gospel of this resurrected Jesus Christ, that Jesus Christ is Lord. In this 1 to verse 6, he's also almost explaining the, tr the Trinity, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. It's a, it's a great few verses that start off the letter as it, it flourishes the, the theology of the gospel. It was a privilege for Paul to speak and preach the gospel. Look at the timeline for Paul. He was imprisoned, I think it's up on the screen, the timeline. Imprisoned in Philippi, chased out of Thessalonica, smuggled out of Berea, laughed at in Athens. The message preached in Corinth was foolishness to the Gentile and a stumbling block for the Jew. And this, yeah, here, he was the conversion of Paul, Paul in Corinth writes at Romans, Paul Martin Rome. So this is right at the kind of the core of his ministry. Out of all that, for I'm not ashamed of the gospel, he's saying, for he is proud. He is privileged. It was an honor to preach this gospel that is so costly. Being imprisoned, being chased out of a city, being smuggled out of a city, being mocked and laughed at in a city. All for Jesus. All for this glorious message. There's three pillars in verses 16 and 17 that I want to unpack. Three key words. 
for it's the very power. I actually thought about using the word power. Power in the Greek is dunamis, which is where we get the word dynamite. And every time we see dunamis or power, it always connects to like what Rachel was saying, is to the Holy Spirit. So you don't get, and I was saying this to the youth on Wednesday night, I said the youth don't get um, the Holy Spirit light. They don't get like the, the light version of the Holy Spirit. This power of the Holy Spirit is first for everyone. No matter if you're 16 years old or 66 years old. If you're white or Pakeha or you're Maori or if you're infirmed or disabled, you have access to the full 100% power of the gospel. Amen? So don't ever think it's like, oh, the pastor gets some special impartation. Baloney. It, I would use a different word, but it's baloney. I don't get any special, like, Holy Spirit, like, extra than you do. We have all the same access. But actually, the three words I want to I hone down on to this morning is, the first one is salvation. For the gospel is what? The power of God for what? Salvation. Soteria is the Greek word. For such a time as this, the known world was searching for something. The philosophical landscape of the world in the first century, people were actually not just worried about must kill bird to cook under fire, eat, like, it, like must, must make shelter. Like, we were thinking more about our interior self in the first century. Philosophers like Pericletus and, and Seneca were, are, are starting to think about who am I? Where am I? What, what destiny do I have? And for such a time as this, the world was searching and wanting something to explain their destiny, who they were. No more this natural world just dictated their life. The sense that people were seeking philosophers for answers about not just their moral lives, but now also their spiritual lives. Do I really matter? Do I really have a purpose? Rick Warren wrote a book called The Purpose Driven Life, sold millions of copies. But, but that was what they were tapping into in the first century. Do I have purpose in my life? If I died right now, would anyone really care? And the people in the first century were asking these questions. And of course, for such a time as this, enter the gospel of salvation from sin and death and the atonement sacrifice of Jesus Christ. It's like, of course it's a perfect fit. And that's what the gospel is. It's a perfect fit. This salvation has many layers, like an onion. It just, it just got so many layers. It's not just, oh, you're saved and you're set free. But it was also salvation from physical illness, rescuing and saving one's body and soul. Matthew 9, 21, the woman that, that just was like, if I could just reach out and grab the, the hem of, her, of Jesus' garment and, and immediate power, dunamis, shot out from Jesus. And Jesus like, hey, who touched me? Hey, stop everything. And that word, soteria, is literally the same word that healed that woman. The demon-possessed man that was healed and set free. They, this, this root word, sozo, is save. 
So it's not just the salvation of ourselves in our spiritual state, but also physically. Illness. God saved me from a migraine. Someone had a migraine this morning. Sozo, you have been saved. You've been rescued. You've been freed up. There's salvation in your brain chemistry right now in the name of Jesus. Amen? But John, you know, hold on, the cross and salvation for my soul only. No, no, no. You could be saved from illness, from cancer, from a migraine, whatever it is. Sozo, soteria, salvation. You can be saved from danger. Give a sense of security to one's soul, no matter what happens. Jesus, remember the time where Jesus were, you know, was in the boat with all the disciples, and, they, and a storm came, and it was like, oh my gosh! And Jesus, what's he doing? He's snoring. He's sleeping, and he's like, Jesus, wake up! And they're like, hey, what's going on? And then he, said, he hushed the storm. Do you remember? That's sozo. He saved them. And then the disciples like, even the wind and the rains obey him. Oh my gosh, he must be God. He's not just a prophet. He's not just a rabbi. There's something more to this Jesus. He's saving us. Salvation from life's infections. We live in a perverse and depraved world. When we are saved by Jesus, he is our, our holy antiseptic. He is our holy antibacteria. Real injection. He's our holy penicillin. In Acts 2.40, he saves us from a crooked generation. Sozo pushes back the work and the intensity of the enemy. Because you're saved. You're bought with a price. It's no longer that you that live, but Christ that lives in you. Come on. But you're saved from lostness. Jesus came to seek and save the lost. Where we were walking before Jesus, we're truly lost. I remember sitting in my basement trying to do some Shinto, like, Eastern meditation, and trying to, like, oh, doing, doing that. Now I do majesty. I go, I was doing, oh, I was, I was in trying to do some transcendental meditation, and I'm trying to, trying to sit in this dark thing and, and be like Steven Seagal and go, oh, go, go Buddha, whatever. And you know what I did? It didn't do anything. I was just as lost, just as dark, just as useless, just as hopeless, but Jesus says, I have come to seek and save John Thwaites. He came and rescued me. He said, this is lostness. You're in a desert. This is, does not work, John. Only the power of the living Christ can seek and save you. Salvation from sin. From the moment Jesus was born and heralded as the Savior and that he would save us from our sins. Jesus would be the Lamb of God. Simeon, this old man waiting at the temple. Do you remember this? The Advent story? Jesus is just a little baby. The mom and dad are coming to the temple to present him to the temple. And Simeon's been waiting on in years, not allowed to die until he sees the consolation of Israel. Do you know what that means? It's the salvation, 
the embodiment, the incarnation of salvation. And he lifts up the baby. He goes, I have seen the consolation. He's holding it in his hands. He goes, this Emmanuel, God with us, he has seeked us, he saved us. Here he is. The Lamb of God. The Lamb of God who takes away the sins of the world. Have mercy on us. Salvation also steers us away from the wrath of God. We stand, and this is something that you'll pick up in Romans as you carry on, is we stand condemned due to our unregenerate self. We deserve this wrath. I remember one time we were, we were in our discipleship class and this teacher said, what do you deserve? And we were like, oh, I deserve like uh, happiness. What do you deserve? I, I deserve a roof over my head. What do you deserve? I deserve three meals a day plus snacks. What do you deserve? And the teacher said, you know what you deserve as far as what the Bible says? Death. You stand condemned. We deserve this wrath. But God so loved the world that he saves you from this wrath. The gift of God is this grace filled salvation through Jesus Christ. Not with anything you could do. No works, no goodness, only through Jesus Christ. Salvation that leads to an eschatological completion. In other words, salvation that leads to the end times of Jesus returning. The final return of Jesus, he will seal the deal when it comes to the final act of saving us and all of creation, amen? He will fully redeem you. He'll fully bring you back to the place where it was like Eden. He'll, he'll fix our planet. So you'll see blue whales and, and, and orcas and, and platypuses and, and, and you know, animals that were extinct. He will redeem. He will save the creation in that day. So when we hear in this wee little text for the power of God for salvation, that's what we're talking about, soteria. But the second pillar that I want to look at this morning is faith. In this context, faith equates to loyalty. Paul wanting to know about the Thessalonica's, the church of Thessalonica, he, he measured it by their loyalty and the resilience to their faith. Being steadfast, sticking it through to the end. It's a combination of, uh, to faith that equates loyalty. It's kind of a new concept in our world nowadays. Loyalty. Faith also means belief. Having the conviction that something is true. Again, with our morality being, truth is being so fluid. But here's the big thing. Believing that the resurrection actually happened. The crucial and vital evidence that demands us to believe and to have faith in Jesus. There's a walking faith, moving faith, a hope in the personhood of the Trinity, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. We want to walk by faith. We want to live by faith. Most important, faith means the total acceptance and the absolute bet the farm all in trust in God. 
Amen? I have bet the farm. I'm all in trusting in God faith. Because like I said, when I was doing that Shinto like, prayer thing, none of that was working. And I think God even said to me one time, how's that working out for you? Not working. But with him, Bonhoeffer said it best this way. Do you remember this quote, Josh? Bonhoeffer said this. He goes, when Christ bids a man, he says, come and die. Oh, spicy. It's a bit spicy. You know what I mean? When Christ bids a man, he says, come and die. You can, you can, you can believe in God, great. That, so everyone else believes in God. Even the demons believe in God. But when you put your faith and trust and hope, 100%, bet the farm, all in. That's me putting all my chips in, by the way, if, if you know what casinos are for. You're like, what's that mean? Like, I'm all in. But sometimes we don't. We're like 90% in, but I've got like one leg out. We're like, yeah, but if this, this doesn't really work, I, I could always do one of these. Maybe that's you this morning. You're just like, God's got, God's got this last leg. God's got that last 1%. He's got you. Like I said before, he'll never leave you nor forsake you. Nor, and forsaking means this. Oh, yeah, Whatever. Maybe we've had that in our life, where people had you for a period of time, and just at the last second they said, well, I'm out, and they washed their hands of you. But God is never going to do that to you. Jesus will never do that to you. The work of the Holy Spirit will never do that. He won't go, I love you, 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 I love you. Yeah, I'm out. You know what the perfect example of loyalty is? God loving you. We live in perverse, wicked, gnarly relationships where everything is so fluid. But you know, one thing you can bank on is the immutability of God. His love of the Father, the, the, the friendship that we have with Jesus, the work of the Holy Spirit, it is so 100% loyal to you. Amen. And guess what you did to deserve it? Goose egg. The third is a theme that I'm gonna unpack in the next eight weeks, is the word justification. Verse 17 says, and I, I have it in a new version. Can we put it up? It's called the J.B. Phillips version. Let me just, let me just look at this here. J.B. Phillips says this, for I am not ashamed of the gospel. I see it as the very power of God working for the salvation of everyone who believes it both Jew and Greek, I see it in God's plan for imparting righteousness to men and a process begun and continued by their faith for as the scripture says, the just shall live by faith. What does justification mean? It's a theological term. We don't use this term a lot in our English language. But we do use the word justify. The Greek word is diakonon. We justify ourselves, literally it means this, we come up with reason or facts that we prove that what we did or say was okay, or the correct way moving forward. So if God justifies another person, he's not coming up with facts about him being right, and not the other person, 
When God justifies a person, it's not that he makes him a better person. No, God treats the sinner as if he was never a sinner in the first place. That's a just if it never happened. Just if, okay. Instead of treating us like criminals, which we should be, he treats us as the children that he loves. Look at this quote up here. Uh, you ready? Barclay, William Barclay, the Scottish um, theologian, says this God reckons us not as his enemies, but as his friends. Not as bad men deserve, understand, right? But as good men deserve. Not as lawbreakers to be punished, but as men and women to be loved. That is the very essence of the gospel. So to be justified is to enter a brand new relationship with God. Justification, or diakonusin, is the right relationship between God and man. It's a legal concept, actually. So check this out. We, we stand before God, and God legally says, you deserve death. You're a criminal. Your sinful acts, I'm always saying to Josh, I'll pick on you too. Your sinful acts deserve death. Do you understand that? Knock, knock, knock. You're like, quiet the court. Guilty. Do you see that? You have a guilty verdict. So do you. So it's not just a male thing or good looking man or whatever. Like, <laughs> you're guilty. You have to understand that you are guilty. Do you understand your sin separates you from a loving, caring, full relationship with God? And you're guilty. Yeah, thank you. So guilty. Thank you very much. God bless. Take care. Taking notes. I love that. So if God was standing in front of you and he's challenging you saying you're guilty, guess what happens? Jesus stands in front of you with the cross and now God can only see what? The cross. But where's Tim? Peekaboo! <laughs> he's still a sinner, but he's saved by grace through faith in Jesus Christ. But when God the Father, when the Almighty God sees you, he looks at you and says, all I see, I just see my son. Well, hold the phone. Legally, legally, you have an out. You are acquitted. That's justification. And every single one of you that have come to me in the past saying, oh, I feel like terrible, I feel garbagey, uh, my sin, my sin, my sin, my sin. I said, yeah, but God sees you as a child that he loves. You were an enemy, but you followed Jesus. You made a decision at some time in your life, call your testimony, where you said, okay, Jesus, you bid me come and die. I come and surrender. Lord, come into my life. I've sinned. I'm lost. Save me. And in that moment, Jesus saves your soul. Your name is written in the Lamb's Book of Life that when you die, you go straight to heaven, paradise. 
There is no purgatory. You don't kind of sit and wait and have your family members pray for you and here's hoping you'll get in. No, no, no. You go immediately to paradise. But in the meantime, in this new life in Christ, when God sees you this morning, Garen, Julia, Robert, he sees the cross of Jesus Christ, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. We are the cruciform disciples of Jesus. So whenever you walk into a room, guess what you bring into the room? Jesus Christ. Yeah. Cheese. Thank you. I've walked into a, ho- a hospital room where someone was critically um, injured. They're on their uh, end of life care. And parents had asked for the chaplain to come in. And uh, I don't know if the family was believers. But I didn't do anything. I don't have a special pass that says, you know, Holy Spirit bringer or whatever. But I walked in the room, and all of a sudden, the room got lighter. We started to read Psalm 23 and started to sing a song. And all of a sudden, the patient started to uh, murmur the song. The nurses were called in going, what did you do? What, bu- what, what button did you press? We've had no activity with her whatsoever. She has become catatonic. I said, nothing. All I've done is, is, is pray and invited the Holy Spirit to come into this Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. I walk in because it's not about John. It's not the celebrity. We don't, lead, we don't do ministry at a celebrity. I walk in as Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. Use me, whatever, whatever it is. I, I read Psalm 23. I sang some little song. And all of a sudden, she starts activating a core memory from when she was probably that young. Jesus loved me, this I know, for the Bible tells me so. Justification. I, I, I'm going to bring the band up for this one last song. Philip Eveson says this, Before God's laws, humans stand condemned, and there is no way they can put themselves right with God. In the gospel, God reveals his way of putting sinners right with himself. Jesus, the Son of God, became the sinner's representative and substitute. As God's obedient servant, he lived a righteous life and died the atoning death on the cross. Justification is one of the key components of God's saving work. It concerns the great exchange. Or both the sins of his people were put to Christ's account and he paid the price and also the righteousness of Christ, obedience to the Father in life and death was put to the account. It is by faith alone in Christ that sinners are justified. There is no substance to the many objections made to this doctrine, but the benefits that result from this gospel truth are enormous and the implications are significant. Why don't you all stand and rise with me as we sing a a gospel-centered song. Martin Martin Luther said it best, and don't worry, Josh, I'm not going to call you out on this one. Martin Luther had this Latin word, he says, sola fides, by faith alone.
in Christ alone. As we come and sing this morning, I want you to put your faith, your all-in, bet-the-farm trust in him. And if you are not there yet, and you'd like to become that follower of Jesus, then it's as simple as just praying right where you're sitting. We're not going to make you come down. Just pray where you are and say, God, I recognize I'm a criminal. I recognize I'm an enemy. I recognize that my sin separates. Free me. Save me. I put my faith and trust in you. Amen, church? Let's sing and then we can move on.